Welcome to the Entertainment Engine. Hello, my name is Peter Moore. And I'm Bex Gregory. And welcome to the next episode of the Entertainment Engine. The idea behind this podcast is to provide clarity and information on the entertainment industry for new bands and artists, as well as existing creative industry people who are looking just to brush up on their knowledge. You can listen to us on all streaming platforms and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you want to learn more about what we do on a day-to-day basis, then please visit our website, seamlessentertainment.co.uk. Each week, we'll be bringing you an in-depth area of the entertainment industry. Also on the show, Bex has the facts of the day and a question for this week for our listeners. And now we're excited to announce our special guest for this week, Mr. Ken Atchity. Ken was born in 1944 in Louisiana and grew up between Louisiana and Kansas City, Missouri. With more than 50 years experience in the publishing world and with over 30 years experience in entertainment, Dr. Ken Atchity, who has a PhD from Yale, has been called a story merchant, writer, professor, editor, producer and literary manager. He's launched hundreds of books and films including New York Times bestsellers and Emmy-nominated documentaries and made over 200 films and television deals with every broadcaster and every studio in Hollywood and plenty of independent film companies as well. His credits include most recently The Meg starring Jason Statham, The Lost Valentine with Betty White, Angels in the Snow with Christy Swanson, Arrays starring Aaron Eckhart, Hysteria with Maggie Gyllenhaal and Life or Something Like It starring Angelina Jolie. Ken has published over 20 books of his own, including six for writers at every stage of their careers and he is also a voting member of the Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences. Here's the chat that Pete had with Ken earlier this week. Okay. Well, welcome to the Entertainment Engine, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Ken Atchity, all the way from the USA. Ken, how are you? Good. How are you this morning? Yeah, very, very well, actually. London's a little bit damp and cold, but, you know, we can't complain. <laughs> That's what makes it London. I love it. <laughs> how, um, how have you been? How was your weekend? Uh, it was productive and almost exactly like my week. <laughs> I can't. I can't tell what day it is anymore. <laughs> no, neither can I. Actually, do you sort of wake up in the morning and think, is it Monday, Wednesday, or, or is it a Sunday? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a strange time we're living through here. Yeah, no, that's for sure. No, that's for sure. How have you um, sort of been coping throughout the pandemic and and you know, touching on COVID a little bit? How how have you been? Well, it's kind of. Uh, it, odd to me and my wife because we both run our companies from home and uh, things have not changed that much. I guess the biggest change is not seeing friends and not going out to eat uh, as often as we used to. We used to go out say three times a week but now we maybe go out once a week and uh, everything else is more or less the same and the difference is that everyone else is, is living our lifestyle now instead of us just being you know, one of the few living it, which is kind of oddly comforting. Yeah, it's quite weird, isn't it? Because I've, I've worked from home quite a long time, and I think you get used to it. And I think when people haven't done it, it's sort of a bit alien to them. But I sort of agree with you, really. It's, I suppose, for you and I and other people that work from home, it's sort of like the norm, really, to, to a point. Yeah, it uh, feels good. But you're safe. That's the main thing. You, you, you're all safe and well, and that's good. Yeah, so far, so good. No, that's good. That's good to hear. No, that's good to hear. And you too? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all good. Um, you may have read in the news that we're having a bit more of a lockdown and changing the rules in the UK. Um, a few of the cities in the UK are going through a bit of a bit of a torrid time and there's a bit of an outcry of what's going on. But, you know, it, it's, it's a, a silent killer. What do you do? It's, if you shut a pub at 10 o'clock and it, it's supposed to shut at 12, it's not really going to make any any odds really so i think the whole world just going through a whole phase of it's really difficult it's just difficult yeah it's hard for me to imagine london without its pubs um <laughs> so i hope that they're, they're making adjustments 
Exactly, exactly. I think we all deserve a pint now and then, but I think one of the arguments, Ken, over here is if people go into the pub, why can't they have their family around at their homes? And we can only live, you know, with six people in a bubble, or is it seven people, and you can't see your grandparents or your mum and dad. It's, it's just a little bit, con I think people are a little bit confused and, and annoyed about it. Yeah. Yeah, there will be an ongoing impact on people's psychology, I think. Yes. Well, that's one of the biggest things we've had with mental health, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same in the U.S. and other parts of the world, which people finding it very difficult. But I think that uh, writers and creative people are just using the time to get more get more work done, and that's, uh, to me, a kind of, you know, that's a silver lining. Yeah, and I'd, I would agree with that. And I think looking at that, the writing side of it, Ken, sort of looking at with more than 50 years experience you have in publishing and over 30 years in entertainment, what motivates you to keep still doing this work? What inspires you today? That's a good question. I mean, it's uh, the answer is that nothing has changed in that regard. It's, it's discovering great stories and working with the writers to perfect them and then getting them to their audiences. That, that's what inspires me. And it's the same thing that inspired me 50 years ago. Um, I've always been inspired by stories and, uh, you know, the, the, the storytellers who create them for us, because I've always believed that the universe is, you know, our human universe is not made of atoms, it's made of stories, as someone once said. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but I think I saw one of your your blogs, your posts, where you used to sit on the porch with your uncles, uh, your relatives, and one wasn't a very good storyteller and one was a very good storyteller, and you stayed around to listen to that gentleman tell his stories, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I was uh, raised, in, born and raised in Louisiana where people love to tell stories on the front porch and, uh, you know, with coffee in the morning or with a drink at night. And uh, I always had, you know, I noticed immediately the difference between when one uncle was there and the porch was filled with people and the minute another uncle came and sat down to tell his stories people started leaving one by one <laughs> and, and it was easy to see uh, from that perspective what what the difference was one of them knew how to tell stories and the other one just did not understand he didn't understand the importance of his audience and keeping eye contact with them and keeping them entertained and they either fell asleep or left the porch, basically. <laughs> Would you say that that really inspired you to get started as a writer and go on your path? Was that sort of really your inspiration at that point? Well, I, th I think so, although, of course, it wasn't conscious. It was just an evolution. Yeah. Um, it just felt natural to be telling stories. And I was always sitting at the kitchen table with my mother, you know, doing the dishes and urging me to finish a short story or whatever I was writing. And then I, even in uh, high school, went into editing and publishing and uh, writing for the Kansas City Star, writing reviews. By the time I was 16, I'd already published 13 book reviews in the newspaper and for the same editor who, who worked with uh, Hemingway. And... Um, I just, it, it was just a natural evolution of writing. If you, so, someone once said, I think it was Edmund Burke, if I live, I should speak my mind. So I've always felt that that was the natural human thing to do, is to tell people what's on your mind and to tell them stories and communicate, basically. Yeah, no, I agree. I think communication is the key. And, I, I, and again, I, I echo that. But I think we've all got a story within us. And I think stories are are the lifeblood of the world, really, whether you look music and film and TV. It's just it's, it's just really, I suppose, an exciting area with everything that we we can download, we can stream TV shows, there's, there's, there's great films. And it just, it's, you know, there's great books that you can download now with Audible and Amazon. So I think everything's accessible now, which is, I suppose, a plus, really. Yeah, it's, we're living in an amazing time where, where everything, as you said, is accessible. Uh, I, when I was in, in college, I read, you know, Teilhard de Chardin and his concept of the Omega Point, a, a point in time when all humans were in regular communication, when we had access to all knowledge, uh, when we were basically able to be anywhere in the world. And we are 
kind of living through that time right now. Uh, you know, we can within seconds, even when I'm talking to someone, I can go to Google Earth and see where they live and see the surrounding neighborhood and uh, feel like I'm there. And of course, the internet has has made the they'll make a point accessible and and into a reality. And it's just so exciting. Like I'm, I'm working on a book now, and every time I run across something that I'm writing, I go I can go check it as I do in Google immediately and choose a better word, a more precise word, or check a fact because you, the memory has ways of tricking you and that uh, you can verify it on Google. And there's just, you know, there's just nothing like it, in, you know, I, I ever imagined when I was younger and it's thrilling to be living in that world. Yeah, no, I, again, I, I echo that as well, Ken. And I think, I suppose a real, not a question for me, but it's more, more of, I suppose, how do you feel about this? Because a lot of people that I talk to have over the last several years with obviously where you can download books now on Audible and on Amazon, or people still like to have a real book in their hand. They like to have something that they can actually feel tangible and, and go, well, you know, I'm on page 50 and I'll, I'll put that away rather than having something on a computer. And what are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about that at the moment? Well, I, I, have, uh, I, I find that I've done most of my reading of books in the last several years, maybe the last five years, on Audible. And uh, as I'm walking, you know, taking a walk or uh, on the treadmill or whatever I'm doing where I don't need my, you know, where, where I can listen. And, and I love that. It's a whole different way of, I'm now rereading some of the books I read in the past so I can hear what they sound like. Uh, and holding a book in my hand like I, I do it every day for about 20 minutes just to force myself to, but it, it isn't as meaningful to me as it is to the people you're talking about. Um, I don't like to read it on the computer. So as an editor, whenever I get something to read, like a manuscript, I, I print it out to read it. I like to have a paper in my hands and a pen in my hands when I'm editing. But as far as just consuming the, a book, I, I would rather do it by Audible than any other way. It's a great way to deal with a long plane trip or to deal with a five-mile walk, you know. So I, I'm thrilled yeah. with that. So yeah. everybody's welcome to their thing. But I, I, I used to have about 4,000 books, and I'm probably down to 1,000 now because I've given away the rest of them to <laughs> libraries. I, I just don't feel the yeah. need of them anymore because it's actually faster to check a line of Dante on the on the internet than it is to go across the room to pick up my copy of the Commedia and look it up, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I think, I suppose we've got to be thankful for Google for that, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I hope Google doesn't become completely taken over by commercial interest. Uh, it's in the process of, of moving in that direction, but I hope that we stop it from dictating what we entirely what we can look up uh, that that's deeply troubling because it's you know right on the right on the verge of mind control and thought control if, it, if that happens i agree i think everyone should have the freedom to you know listen and look at what they want to and, and come up with their own informed opinion really and i think still staying with the books as, as well ken and whether it's audible whether it's um you know paperback i mean you've launched many books and films including the New York Times bestseller and Emmy-nominated documentaries, and you made over 200 film and television deals with every broadcaster or every studio in Hollywood, plus plenty of independent film companies. What would you say differs from an indie deal today to a Hollywood deal, and what makes a great screenplay stand out to you? Well, it's uh, it's an ancient formula. It, a great screenplay grabs your attention immediately, and I always say the symptom of a great screenplay is that I... I read the whole screenplay in 45 minutes to an hour. If it's not a good screenplay or not so good, it takes me two or three hours to read it in several cities. But um, a story that's well told grips you from the beginning, holds you throughout, and then satisfies you with this conclusion. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a, the ultimate uh, Petri dish for testing a story because we we all live with the remote control in our hands. And if a story is not grabbing us and holding us, like the British series Killing Eve, for example, which I love, 
Um, yeah, yeah. We, ju we just flip to another channel. Um, there's no patience. The audience has never been um, less patient than it is today. I mean, people didn't leave the playhouse in Shakespeare's time. They basically sat there and, you know, made their ticket worthwhile by sitting there the whole time and enjoying something going on on the stage, even if they didn't get, you know, the heavy, the heavy stuff that's being said by the main actors. They're watching the groundlings, you know, they're watching others in the, in the theater. They're watching the clowns on the side stage, et cetera. And, uh, but today, no, if, if our attention lapses, we switch channels. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's the same with newspapers. I can see people when they're traveling, you know, they're flicking through a newspaper. Um, and the one thing I've always found with advertising, people's eyes always go to the um, to the right-hand side of the page. So if it's something that grabs them quickly, they will look at it, but then they will move on. And I, you know, I'm probably guilty of that as well. If I'm reading a story or a news article, I'll, I'll, I'll read it quickly. If I find it not interesting, then I'll go to the next story. So it is, I suppose, you know, you're correct. It's something that needs to grab you. The thing, thing to notice is that even the act of switching channels is is a search for stories. It, it's the lo love yep. for stories that drives both your staying, you know, in front of a channel and switching it. Either way, you're still, it's stories that's, that are driving you. Yeah, yeah. And I think we all, we, I'd say we all love stories. And I suppose really staying with stories and some of the films that you've been involved with, Ken, over the years. I mean, most recently you was involved in Meg with Jason Statham, um, with Warner Brothers, Lost Valentine with Betty White, um, Hysteria with Maggie Gyllenhaal, and obviously A Race with Aaron Eckhart. Did you co-write the screenplays for those movies or did your literary agency provide any of the writers? And how does that process work? Well, they're all, everyone is different. Um, they're, with Meg, with the Meg, for example, I, I, I'm the one who discovered the story from Steve Alton, who was a, working at a, a kosher butcher store in, my, in Miami at the time, and uh, developed it with him for six months, and then took it to uh, Doubleday and sold it for a couple of million dollars. And then shortly after sold it to Disney, which was the first place that it tried to get made. And then I resold it to New Line years later, and uh, it, you know it took 20 years to get to the to the screen because every story I always say has its own clock, and you don't know what it is. You just have to wind it up and let it run. You never know when it's going to make it, you know, to where it needs to go. Uh, so what you should be doing as a storyteller is writing something else. So in the case of Meg, it was based on a manuscript, you know, a a, a brilliant concept and a rough manuscript that, that the writer's lifeline, one of my companies developed. Uh, and then uh, with Hysteria, I read the script, I remember, and could not find a single thing to develop or change. I just thought it was a perfect script. Hilarious, I mean, to me, that was hilarious because it never happened to me before. You know, I'm an editor, so the first thing I see is something to change. But this, this yeah. one was yeah. perfect. And I told the writers that, and. I was part of the financing of that movie and got to be in London for the shoot and uh, and the writers were there the whole time, thrilled to see their dream coming alive. Uh, and uh, yeah, he erased again, I, I helped with the financing of that and uh, helped develop the script. Um, and in some cases, uh, like we did a movie a couple of years ago called uh, Angels in the Snow that was based on a yep, client's yep. novel that we wrote a treatment for and sold the, finally sold the treatment, even though we couldn't sell the novel for years. But then we we found a, a buyer who loved the story and finally got it made. Yeah. So it's it's all a question of, you know, developing the story for the two different markets. One is for the book market, which has its own requirements, but then the Hollywood market has in the film market in general has much harsher and more formulaic requirements that are absolutely necessary. The, the three-act structure, uh, the maintenance of dramatic tension throughout the story. And uh, we often have you know, a, a huge challenge to develop a book into a novel. One of my favorite examples is the sound in the fury, this crazy 
five five part novel by Faulkner told from five different points of view. And uh, he himself wrote the screenplay to it, you know, which means turning 500 pages into 100 pages. And he made it from one point of view. Uh, and yet when you watch it, it gives you the same experience, the same story that you get from reading the book. Uh, like Prince of Tides, where this 650 page book by Pat Conroy was reduced to a 120 page screenplay by Barbara Streisand and uh, the others and you know on her team and you still feel like you've seen the Prince of Tide story uh, even though in some cases a uh, hundred pages have been cut down to a single scene or even a single shot uh, of the camera so it, it's challenging but these are just different ways of telling the story and we like to focus on the story, which is why my main company is called Story Merchant. We like to focus on the story and then try to develop it for all the markets it, it can uh, it can be it can work in. Yeah, again, that's that fascinates me as well, Ken. Where you can actually have a writer that you know writes a book, and how you turn it into a screenplay. Then actually, you can have you know major actors on stage, like you know Maggie Gyllenhaal or Jason Statham or Angelina Jolie, and that, that's turned into a film. I think. For me, there's there's not many art forms, and I wouldn't call myself a writer, but but I do enjoy it, and I and I like it. But I do think um, writing a book and then having that turn into a screenplay, I just think it's magical, really, because I think you're taking those words off of um, um off the page and developing them in, into you know into another theatre, and I think it's really interesting. Yeah, there's nothing quite like it, I guess, except um, maybe in music where very serious opera has been turned into popular song um yeah you know with the same melody and the same message primarily yeah. uh that's always surprising to me and it's usually unrecognizable i mean the people listening to the popular song don't even realize it's actually from a you know a, a, an opera no. or a classical piece no. but uh yeah it, it it's exciting and it's a, it's a living art in other words the it's always moving and changing. And uh, that's why movies are not done until they're finally edited and, you know, shown, because you can always find something to change. And uh, the whole question is, can you enhance the story further or have you got it to the very best it can be? Um, and the very fact that storytellers are never quite satisfied with how they tell the story is what drives them to go on and tell a bigger and better story next time, you know? Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, so if you've got a, a, a budding writer, Ken, and you've got this story and you think it's a really great story and you take it to a studio, whether it's a major or, or an independent, do you sometimes get a bit of conflict with the, the, the major studio wanting to bring in other writers to actually enhance it? Or, or how do you find that process works? Or again, is it per, per project basis? Uh, you know, it's the whole focus is on the story. It's not on the writer. And writers of novels uh, have a hard time dealing with that. They yeah. they are much more identified with their work than with their stories. You know, with with the, with their authorship, with themselves as authors, than with the story they're telling. And in Hollywood, because Hollywood is driven strictly by audiences, Hollywood is focused yeah. on the story. And their goal is to make this story the very best it can be. And one of the famous examples is when they did an uh, interview with the vampire, uh, yeah. Anne Rice's novel. She was so upset by what she thought was going on at Universal that she took a full page ad in the New York Times attacking them for ruining her story, uh, <laughs> even before she saw it. And uh, when it was finally done, and they wouldn't let her anywhere near the set, because the the last thing you need on a set is a, a, an ego from the, you know, from the original writer. And the writers who can be on set are ones to leave their egos behind and focus on making the story as best it can be. And when you have world famous directors and world famous actors, and you think they shouldn't change anything, then there's something wrong with your ego, and you need to go examine that seriously and stay away from the set. Um, anyways, yeah. long story short, yeah. they, they gave her a private screening of the movie when it was finished yeah. before it was, you know, released. 
and she was spellbound. She was shocked by it. She was in tears. And and then she took out another full page ad in the New York Times, apologizing, um, you know, for her first ad, and <laughs> praising the filmmakers for staying true to the to the essence of her story, uh, and, and enhancing it and all of that. So it, it's kind of exciting. It's like I compare movies to the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. I mean, what is a cathedral? It is a compilation of artworks with a single guiding concept if it's a you know successful cathedral uh, that that melds merges together sculpture architecture painting um, you know uh, frescoes mosaic every every art known to including music because of course the organs are a centerpieces of cathedrals so almost every art known to the human race is displayed in a cathedral it takes you know it takes a village of artists to put up a cathedral and that's the way a film is under best conditions it's it's every kind of talent when you see what goes into composing music for a big movie uh, it, it is a massively serious undertaking and so when you know when the writer says oh by the way I have a friend who's a musician and he'd love to do the music for my movie it's you know, it's really confusing to the film community because they're going, but we have, you know, Alan Williams. We, we have this whole list of world famous Oscar winning, Emmy winning, you know, composers. Um, why wouldn't we go to them instead of your friend down the street? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and that's why I think artists become, the, the more successful they become, the more they respect the work that Hollywood can do to create, you know, a, a, a better way of telling the story than maybe you did in your book. Um, you know, because there's so many people judging every step of how a movie progresses to the screen that every little flaw in it uh, gets under a magnifying glass. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned in one of my books that if a, a guy is wearing a red baseball cap in the opening scene and in the next scene he's wearing a, a blue one and the next one he's wearing a red one and, and the next one he's wearing a blue one the audience is going to notice that and, and really not understand what's going on and they're going to ask questions about it unless there is a clear reason for this alternation of color because every single little thing gets registered in the mind of the audience you know yes 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 and I think I think that's a really great point as well, Ken, because some movies sometimes when I watch, and I obviously, like you, in, in the industry and observe a lot of stuff, when I'm now watching a movie and watching a scene and the actors are not actors and actresses are not saying anything, I'm thinking, well, the writer's written that. There's some scenes where they don't say anything or they're just moving across the floor, whether it's a kitchen or a living room or, or, or an open space, and they're not saying anything or it's really quiet, and you think... But the writer's written that. The writer's actually said, this is what we need to do. This is how this scene's going to work. And I just, it just fascinates me, really, how yeah. an actor can interpret those words, really, and actually be emotional and actually connect with the audience in that way. And I, I heartily agree with you, is sometimes artists like to own their craft and it's precious, but sometimes you, if you just let it go, great things can happen with it. Yeah, and it's one of the most exciting things that happens on set when you're the creative producer on a movie is helping the, the writer uh, cut dialogue. Because the, the better the actor is, the less he needs dialogue. Um, you know, an actor will come up to you and say, in this next scene, no, I really don't need to say that. I can do that without the words. Is it okay if we cut the line? And uh, you, you shoot it that way. And, and if it works without the words, then you actually have a stronger scene. Because it's not, yeah. it's not the words that make a story. It's these intangible things. It's starting with character. And if an actor can create a character and portray a character with fewer words, uh, think of Marlon Brando and The Godfather, you know, uh, he didn't have much to say. No. But everything no. he said became, yes. you know, what was impactful and moved the story forward. Um, yes. So that's part of the excitement of it is realizing that storytelling is an ancient human thing that happened uh, all the way back to before recorded history 
when guards were walking around Greece from, you know, fireside to fireside telling stories. And uh, interestingly enough, the bard, uh, the word is was technos, which we got the word technical from, technos, uh, w was regarded as equal to a king when it came to uh, hospitality and protection. When he arrived in the household, he got the best food, the best lodging, and was treated like royalty uh, because he was bringing a story. And that there were no books back then and no scrolls and no uh, inscriptions of any kind. So the only way society stayed together was by sharing stories. And that was the job of the technosis to bring the stories from one place to the other. Uh, and so they treated him with that, that respect. And it's just uh, very powerful to, to recognize that stories are what hold the human race together. Uh, when you think about it, the, the first question that we would ask someone arriving from, you know, a distant star was, is what, what's your story? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's the question that you're asking when you're in a jury listening to two, or, two attorneys, you know, trying yeah. a case. What's, what's the story here? If you're at a yeah. at a car lot trying to buy a car, what's the story? If you're if you're a voter trying to decide on two candidates, what's your story? That's what you want to know. If you're on a first date, that's what you want to know. What's this guy's story? And do you buy his story or do you not buy his yeah. story? Yeah, and I was going to say it's do you believe the story or do you not believe the story? And you're absolutely right. And everything we do in, across society. You're meeting someone for the first time. It's always so. What What do you do? What's your story? What What do you get up to? It's a natural human um, reaction, and through body language as well. That you know, people tell stories and, and people understand. So I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and you can tell by body language when somebody is telling a story, and, and the audience isn't buying it. You can tell right away, and you can tell when yeah. they are buying it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes if I'm in, when I was in the cinema pre-COVID, uh, um, pre you can tell the people that really enjoy the film. And when you come out of the of the movie theatre, you can tell the people that didn't enjoy the movie or were just there because it was just something to do. And I think if you're going to go and do the experience, you've got to go and enjoy it. Um, and what, what better place to do it? And if you said body language is, 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 is the one certain thing when people come out of, whether it's a theatre um, a movie or watching a rock concert or a pop concert, they're full of joy. Most people are full of joy because they've had a great time. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just, it is fascinating. I mean, really just staying with Meg for the moment, Ken, which I actually watched uh, took a couple of times actually, and I thought it was really, really good. I'm actually quite a fan of Jason Statham anyway. I think he's, I think he's generally pretty good. Um, What's the box office and ancillary income been for this movie sort of today? And was you on the set for the movie? And did you provide any finance for it as well? How did the how did the whole structure work? Well, the uh, by the time the movie got made, I I was no longer actively involved in it. I I was the developing producer, and um, the lead producer was a woman named Belle Avery who put together the financing on it. And uh, okay, you know, and although I talked to her from time to time. Uh, it was out of my hands at that point. So my main contribution was developing the original story and the first six versions of the screenplay and working with first Disney, then New Line. But then uh, as the years went past and it didn't get made, uh, you know, others came in and finally got it made. So I, you know, I was happy to see it come along. I was, I knew it was all, I always knew it was going to be made, but uh, I I just was not able to bring that ship in myself. No, but it was, I must admit, when I watched it, it was at, it did actually keep it just kept me on my toes because I thought just you know some of the scenes and I thought it's a re I thought the story was really good. Um, I think Jason was the right person for it because he's just that type of person. I think it was just really good. And I also see that they've announced Meg Two. Is that correct? Oh yes, Meg Meg Two would have been made two years ago if it weren't for the Chinese uncertainty about American, uh, the stability of American finance, because they, okay. they don't want to lose their money on this. And they're, they're very concerned about the volatility of our president. 
And, uh, yeah. you know, they could invest $100 million and it could be out the window tomorrow because of some crazy new thing that comes out. Um, yeah. So that's what's delayed it, but it's, it's ready to go. And, uh, you know, we all can't wait to see it. It's based on The Trench, which was the second novel. We, we went on to sell, I went on to sell six or seven other novels for Steve uh, until by the time uh, we moved in different directions, uh, he had maybe gotten 10 bestsellers, 10 New York Times bestsellers that we had set up for, you know, with different publishers for him. But uh, we're, I'm so I'm excited because one of my movies that I'm developing now based on a novel by William Deal, who wrote Primal Fear and Sharky's Machine. Uh, this novel is called Tie Horse and we are we have an offer out to Jason Statham right now to star in it. Oh wow! Finger, crossing our fingers that he'll that he'll be involved. Yeah, yeah no, no, it must be a great honor as well, Ken, to have you know, like I said before, words on a page and then suddenly it becomes on screen. It becomes a reality, and like you 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 said as well, many people it's always the hurry up and wait syndrome, and I think you know you've highlighted it very eloquently where. It can take 20 years to get from book to screen and actually get made and financed and get the right actors. And it's, you know, it must have been an honor when it actually happened. But all the movies that you've done, it, it's obviously you sit back and think, you know, that was a great achievement. Yeah, well, you actually don't think that way. But um, in your heart, <laughs> you, you're proud of it. But it's so distant by that time because, you know, I have a whole thing of philosophy about the waiting room. Um, I learned long ago, I don't wait for anything. I just do something else. And as a result of that, I've, you know, produced over 30 movies and sold, maybe made 200 deals with Hollywood um, and have three movies approaching production right now because I'm doing something else while I'm waiting. Uh, I hate waiting and I hate focusing all of your, you know, kind of self-credibility in a single project. Uh, because these projects take on a life of their own and you have no control over yeah. most of that. So you just need to be doing something else. And that's why I've, you know, had very full life because I'm always being surprised that something is now coming alive again. We're just making a British uh, theater deal for one of William Deal's novels. Uh, after 15 years of neglect, suddenly these two producers in London are going to bring it to the stage. And uh, it, it's it's a world that's filled with, you know, excitement and surprises uh, and strange situations uh, having to do with rights. When I first got into this world, I was a professor of comparative literature teaching and analyzing stories. But uh, I decided I wanted to be on the, on the side of making stories instead and putting them out in the world. And, one of the few surprises, I mean, one of the surprises, many surprises I had when I started was getting called by uh, creatures called trackers. Have you ever heard of trackers in this bit? No, I haven't. Yeah. No, no. In the story market, trackers are people who track down the rights to stories. And they'll call you and say, is it true that you have the rights to William Deal's, you know, tie horse? And you say, yes. And they say, thank you. And I go, well, who are you? Why are you calling? Well, I can't tell you who my boss is, but I appreciate the information. That's all I need, blah, blah, blah. But they'll be in touch with you. It's because they're getting paid by big companies to look for the rights to certain stories. And uh, that told me immediately I was in a very exciting business where stories were so valuable that people were hired to track them down. Wow. Um, no. You know, and it, it, it's a, the whole business of the rights of stories is kind of hilarious like one time I was sitting at a pub in London and my office had just FedExed a script to me that we were waiting for for a movie we'd sold a year earlier and now the script was written by a, a major writer director and I started you know sitting at the counter in the pub drink, drinking my my uh, stout and reading this script and I got to page five and I called my office and said you guys sent me the wrong script and they said no, we didn't. Keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I read it, and I swear to God, there maybe were 10 words left of the original script, the original story. Everything had been changed. 
to the point where it was unrecognizable to people who knew the original story. Uh, and make a long story short, talking to my attorney, he goes, well, you'll be, you know, New Line wants to go with this story as well. They want to go with this story, not the story that we sold to them. So you will be producing this story too. So what I thought was happening was like a single sperm was impregnating <laughs> two eggs. And, uh, you know, suddenly we, we had two deals going. And uh, because somebody had changed the whole, they changed the DNA structure of this story. Um, and it, it created all kinds of interesting legal issues. And I ran into this kind of strange thing every, you know, every month in this business where story rights get so complicated and um, it, it takes an army to unravel them. And it takes sometimes years to get them straight straightened out which again tells you how much we value stories oh absolutely no absolutely and i think um again yeah it's all in the story it it's it completely it's in the song it's in the lyrics it's in the story whether it's the book uh, the screenplay and yeah, absolutely right and i think with your academic career ken and there's too much there's far too much to mention like you know you receive the woodrow wilson fellowship at yale um You've won a PhD in theatre for comparative literature from Yale, and the list goes on and on and on. How would you compare the commercial world to the academia world at the moment? Well, you know, I'm still I, I still give webinars and do a lot of teaching, um, but it's all about stories that are, are of contemporary interest and issue. And uh, the academic world, I was told when I went into it from Yale where I did my PhD that, you know, it was the great world of ideas. But I did not find it to be the great world of ideas because the people in the academic world are often so consumed with uh, petty power struggles uh, and focusing on tiny niches of human experience. You know, like you had to specialize in 17th century uh, romantic lyrics, uh, you know, British romantic lyrics rather than uh, anything broader like drama <laughs> in this 17th century. You know, you, you had to focus, focus, focus. And I, I have always refused to focus. I was in comparative literature because I didn't want to focus. But when yeah, I got yeah. into the film world, when I changed, I suddenly thought that the film world was the true world of ideas because this is where ideas are tracked, you know, pursued, uh, bought for millions of dollars, reshaped, hundreds of millions of dollars put into making a big movie. Uh, and if that isn't the true world of ideas, I don't know what else is. Plus, plus it's a jungle without the orderliness of academic committees and promotion and ranks and everything orderly like that. This is just a sheer jungle. A completely unknown person can be uh, find himself sitting there with uh, two million dollars in his bank account and directing his first movie just because he wrote a brilliant script. Um, kind of what happened with with Juno. I mean, these this can happen overnight because it is a world of ideas and people are willing to, as the player pointed out, that great movie, The Player, uh, basically lie, kill, and cheat, you know, to to get an idea. Uh, where they want it and there are lots of good people in this you know this business of Hollywood but this is the place where dreams become reality and I always say that the difference between a con man and a visionary in Hollywood is is success uh, you know if <laughs> yeah. if you used hundreds of millions of investors money and, and your movies are you know a flop you can bet, bet that somebody out there is going to call you a con man but if your movies are Spielberg movies, you know, worldwide smashes, you're just a genius. You're a visionary. Um, and the difference is that, you know, in this case, Spielberg's a better storyteller. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it is truly ideas. I mean, I've never done as much thinking as I have in this business. Uh, and there's no very little repetition the way there is in the academic business where you know that you know, I always knew uh, in October that on 
June 15th, I would be talking about uh, Homer's Iliad book eight, you know, in my class. And I knew that a year in advance. So it was a very, you know, let's say heavily structured environment. Whereas ever since I've left that world for the film world, I truly don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow, except for the case of COVID. But um, I mean, I was all over the world uh, up until January of this year. I was probably made 50 trips a year and I never knew where they were going to be a year in advance. It's driven by the ideas and, you know, what it takes to put them together. Yeah, and I think I think it's probably your experience in the academia world and coming into the film world it's probably put you in, in you know good stead with actually the way that the world works as well Ken. you got you can wear both hats really yeah and I, you know people said well you used to write about the greek classics and the renaissance and nothing stops me from doing that now and i have written so several of my academic books came out when i was had already left the academic world because i was still working on them and i i still you know, I'm involved in several activities that one would call academic, but I'm trying to find a way to bring them to a bigger public. And that's always the challenge. No, I, I, I hear that, and I think that's, that is always the challenge. But, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, that they would always say. And you've also been, you know, nominated as well, Ken, for an Emmy for producing the Kennedy detail on Discovery Channel based on Jerry Blaine and Lisa McCobb's New York Times best-selling book. Right. You know, that must have been a real surprise and an honor for you. How did that come about? Well, it was uh, interesting. Lisa McCubbins was my client. I met her at a writer's festival in Aurora, Illinois, and she had the instructors over for a barbecue at her house and got a chance to tell me that she, to tell me how ambitious she was and how much she wanted to have a profession writing. And she pitched me a story that was a good story I was worried about selling it because it wasn't well known. It was about her grandfather being a basketball coach in Chicago. And long story short, we, we never did sell it, although the book was very well written. But I told her if she wanted to go on in her career, she needed to hitch herself to a well, you know, a household name, a, a, a pre-established uh, entity. And she found uh, Jerry Blaine a secret service agent who had been on the Kennedy detail and wrote his book with him and then went on to write one with uh, with with Jackie Kennedy's agent, uh, <clears throat> Clint. And, um, and I think they wrote three together all together. All of them were New York Times bestsellers. And, and that came because she actually listened to my advice about like, you've got to get something identifiable to get your name on the map. Uh, and I still give that advice to writers all the time. Like you want, don't write, you know, an original spec screenplay, adapt a classic, you know, do an adaptation of a Shakespeare play in modern times. You can see lots of movies have been successful doing that, but you automatically get the attention of the buyers if they, they can see the identifiable nature of your, of your work. And then they read it and you did such a great job with it that they're ready to buy it. And they don't care that you've never written anything before. All they care about is this is a Shakespeare play, or this is a, you know, this is a Jane Austen novel redone, or this is a The Wizard of Oz, or whatever it is you, you know, you you love and can latch onto and make your own. Um, that that's the best approach to Hollywood. It always gets me excited. We're in the middle of trying to set up a movie called Ricky Ticky Taffy Origins that is based yep. on that yep. you know great short story by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, we're, because Toby, my client, uh, I told him that and he found a story that he loved and wrote a completely original take on it that is thrilling and uh, decided to make Ricky a, a girl, which is even more thrilling. Um, and so we're been pushing, you know, pushing that along and, and people are all reading it and excited, not because they know my author, uh, my writer, right? But because they know, they know the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I know. Again, it's 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 a real fascinating world you live in, Ken. And and you know, you, like you say, you never know what's going to come around the corner, what's going to land on your map tomorrow morning. It could be the next bestseller. It could be, you know, and just another story you develop over the next, you know, next ten years, five years, which I think's 
you know, really, you know, I think it's just really exciting. And um, I mean, looking, you're um, married to your to your wife, who's a documentary filmmaker, um, and you run a non-profit organisation as well, Yoga Gives Back, and you serve on the board of directors. What, what's it like working with your wife? Do you sort of, um, do you get on and you sort of, you know, how does that relationship work? Well, it couldn't be, it couldn't be better. I mean, I, uh, Kyle, Kyle was my third wife and you know, thank God I kept trying until I got it right because, uh, you know, I would hate to have quit uh, along the line before I got there. And uh, we get along more or less perfectly. And she had a, a dream 13 years ago to give back for the gift of yoga and created a company that does just that. Its slogan is for the cost of one class, we you can change a life. And 13, you know, 13 years later, Yoga gives backs in 34 countries and has almost 100 ambassadors. And uh, we're on a 1 million yogis campaign. And uh, we've given up the Namaste Award every year to famous uh, people who spread peace and wisdom, like Alanis Morissette and Deepak Chopra's daughter, Alana, and, uh, and uh, David Lynch, filmmaker David Lynch, because of his work with, med with Transcendental Meditation. And uh, so it's it, it's delightful to see the progress that she's making, and I just le lead my you know lend my wisdom to it um, whenever I can, and otherwise uh, help her hang in there, uh, creating this basically out of nothing. Uh, it, it's been one of the biggest thrills of my life. That's really good. So are you up in the morning first thing, Ken, doing a bit of yoga? Uh, no, I don't do yoga. I do meditation and. Uh, Okay. I, I play tennis, and tennis and yoga are not exactly compatible. So no. <laughs> yeah, and I am not exactly. I'm not exactly the body of a yogi. Um, I tried a few. <laughs> I tried a few lessons, and a teacher told me in front of the class one day, "I have a hundred and one year old cat who has more flexibility than you do." <laughs> so, that was it for me. Yeah, but you, you're still you're still out there doing the thing, Ken, and that's the main thing. And I, I think I, I still. Staying with Hollywood for a little bit, what, what have been the main factors you faced starting out in Hollywood and what's the positive and what are the negatives that you faced over, over your sort of, you know, several decades really? What's the good and bad? Well, the good, the good is that it's a, a place of unlimited opportunity. People say you only get one shot. That is ridiculous. You, know, you get as, exactly as many shots as you're willing to take. Uh, I, I once heard a guru in India, you know, be asked the question, Master, how many times can I can I pick myself up? And, and he said, how many times can you fall? And, you know, if you can pick yourself up, Hollywood is ready to listen to you again. All they're looking for is good stories. They don't really care what you did yesterday. They want to know what you've got right now. And uh, so it, it's unlimited opportunity. No wonder that people have come here from all over the world to, you know, to perform, to play music, to act, to uh, write, to produce. Uh, it, it is a mecca of creativity. And so that's the exciting part of it. The, uh, I mean, it's a city of dreams and it's truly no dream uh, is disrespected here. And uh, the bad side of it is that it's brutal uh, and people become overnight successes in sometimes 20 or more years, you know, that, that's what Hollywood means by an overnight success. And uh, the brutality of it is that it's, it, it doesn't uh, brook any nonsense. Like if you are not cutting the mustard with your story, you will never hear from the people you met with again. Um, they'll tell you a lot of nice things in the meeting, but then they'll never call you back. Uh, it, it's a tough, tough world. and. When I learned enough about it, that's why I decided I wanted to be in it. I didn't want to be in a in a, a world of, of niceness and coddling and uh, over overly respectful conversations. I wanted to be in the real world of storytelling. So the good news about it is if you can take it, uh, it's the world to be in. It's the ultimate world of storytelling. Uh, that's the, the good news and the bad news. <laughs> yeah, well, that's no, that that is really positive, actually, Ken. And I think staying with that, what would be your just your one single piece of advice that you would give people wanting to pursue a career as a writer, a film producer, 
what would you say to them? Well, I, I would say, you know, I, I would say one piece of advice consisting of four things. The first one is learn everything about this career. Don't tell me that they don't make good movies anymore, which instantly identifies you as someone who doesn't watch movies and has no idea what's going on. Learn everything about this world that you can and never stop learning. That's the first thing. Second is volunteer for the kind of people that you want to work with. Volunteer for them. They're always looking for volunteers and interns and assistants and volunteer. It's an ancient method that works wonders. Um, the third thing is never give up as Churchill told the British, never give up, yeah. never give yeah. up, never give up. Uh, yeah. Giving up is how you lose. As some baseball player once said, or basketball player, you lose 100% of all the shots you don't make. You know, if you don't keep trying and you're not going to succeed, it's the ones who keep trying to succeed. And, uh, and the, four, the fourth thing, and maybe the most important thing psychologically is when you say, what are the odds of my making it? I instantly tell you the odds don't apply to people who succeed in Hollywood. You know, the odds don't apply to me. So if you're a person who needs to know the odds, forget it. Do something else. Go work as a stockbroker or a trader or a teller or anything to do with odds. But Hollywood is not about, you know, calculating the odds. It's about the unexpected and the unlikely happening because people didn't believe in odds. There's a great line in a, a movie called Burlesque where um, Christina Aguilar, who's the main character, goes in the opening scene in her little town in the Midwest, goes to a bus station and asks for a ticket to Los Angeles. And the clerk says, one way or round trip? And she <laughs> goes, you you got to be effing kidding me. <laughs> I thought that was, that was the perfect Hollywood answer. You know, are you kidding me? Walt Disney, when he moved to Hollywood from Kansas City on the train with $7 in his pocket, did not get a round trip ticket. Uh, you know, if you're the person who needs a round trip ticket, don't even think about this career. No. Th this is for people who go all out uh, and t risk the odds, battle the odds, and after all uh, is said and done, completely ignore the odds or any thought about the odds. So that's my last piece of advice. It's an exciting ride. Take it if you can uh, and be thrilled that the crazy things that you run into are happening to you because this is what you asked for. This is, as people tell me all the time, this is what goes with the territory. That's really great, solid advice. And I think coming from you as well, with your experience, I think you know, people will certainly, you know, take note. And I think, you know, your testimony and we've had some, you know, speaking with some great guests over the weeks. And I think it's really important. That's why we wanted to share what we're doing on the podcast so that people are aware. And it's like you said, it can take 20 years to, you know, great, create a great story. And I think you've got to be in it for the long haul and, and you know, learn your craft. You don't go to university, you know, to be a literary professor or actually going to be, you know, learn how to build cars. It doesn't happen within five minutes. It takes years. If you want to go and train to be a lawyer, it takes years. So you've got to learn your apprenticeship really and actually you know build your experience and build your knowledge and build your contacts and then you know one day you you could get lucky but that lucky's come from you know 20 years of experience and being in the game exactly you're the harder you work the luckier you get yeah i agree and i think we, we touched on and sort of just a little while ago ken some of your hobbies you you, you love tennis are there anything else that you do in your spare time um, other than obviously writing and producing movies? Is there anything else you do um, that, you know, you're really interested well, in? Well, I, I love hiking um, and I love being with my grandkids hiking and doing whatever we can do together. Cooking, I guess, is probably <laughs> the, the main hobby that I have. I love cooking. What do you like to cook? What's, what's your favorite food? Um, well, probably Italian, Italian, Cajun and Lebanese. Those are my three top ones because I'm half Cajun and half Lebanese and I, I love Italy and uh, I've lived there for some time yeah. during my life. Yeah. And uh, so I'm always in the middle of one thing or the other from those three cuisines. My wife, of course, cooks Japanese and I wouldn't 
think of competing with her there. But I do make a really good, I do make a good Thai cucumber salad. <laughs> well, actually, talking about Lebanese, now that's something I've learned today. I didn't realize you was uh, part Lebanese, Ken. And funny enough, when one of my um, buddies in London, Becky and I, we were up there a few months ago, um, sort of last year, and we went to a Lebanese restaurant and the food was fantastic. He had attended it a few times and there was four of us and the food was really great. And it's the first time I had Lebanese food and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really, really good. Please send it my name so I can I will. go there next time I'm I will. I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, it, it was only a small place. It wasn't a very big place. And um, we sort of arrived. It wasn't very busy, um, but my buddy had been there a couple of times and suggested it. The food was great. Yeah, it was really good. It was all fresh. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. And it's... it's that's the first time I've had Lebanese food. So when I'm um, back in town again, obviously with COVID, um, I will I will certainly pay a visit. And I'll send you the link. Yeah, I will definitely send you the link. Yeah, please. Please. I'd love to go there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think really just to sort of finish off really, Ken, and, you know, it's been really fascinating and really interesting to speak with you today. And you know, I've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will as well. And where, where can our listeners connect with you online? Website, social media? You know, if they got that killer script they want to send you um, or just, you know, have a bit of advice about their writing, where's the best place they can um, they can get in touch? Well, um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, but the, the best place is on storymerchant.com. That's my landing page. And I have a, a blogspot, kenatchity.blogspot.com for daily announcements and news. But storymerchant.com is the best way to reach me. Uh, to understand what I do. I have five companies dealing with various aspects of storytelling. You can figure them all out from storymerchant.com. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody and uh, wish you the best and keep up the good work. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Ken, and thanks for coming on the Entertainment Engine. And it's always fascinating to talk to really great professional people in the business, and I really appreciate your time. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was so great to have a chat with Ken this week on the show and learning more about his life as a writer, literary agent, publisher and Hollywood producer, which I'm sure there are many, many points for you all to take away with you. Facts of the day. In 2014, a group of researchers from the Museum of Science and Industry in England released an online test with an interactive game called Hooked on Music. It contained 1,000 clips from pop songs going all the way back to the 1940s and it asked 12,000 participants to identify songs as fast as possible. They found that Wannabe by the Spice Girls was the catchiest song. People were able to recognise it in about 2.3 seconds which is way below the five-second average of identifying other popular songs. The study was unveiled at the Manchester Science Festival in 2014, and in second place was Lou Baker's Mambo No. 5, which was identified in an average of 2.4 seconds, and Survivor's Eye of the Tiger was third with an average time of 2.62 seconds, and Just Dance by Lady Gaga was the fourth most catchiest song. And now, let's have a recap onto last week's question of the day. With the names Jimmy, Robert, John and John, can you identify the rock band by the first names of their original lineup? And the answer is Led Zeppelin. We want to give a shout out to Stefan from Germany, who is a big, big fan of Led Zeppelin, and he nailed the question. So a big well done for getting the answer correct. Plus a big thanks to everyone else who's took part. We'll have more questions for next week, so stay tuned. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Entertainment Engine, and thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we have another special guest on the show, the actor and rapper Z Money, who is one of the newest fresh-faced artists hitting the scene right now as a World Peace Youth Ambassador, bringing new energetic sounds to music all over the world. Z Money has taken the game by storm and not only is he a musician, he is a budding actor. So tune in to the show next week when we learn more about Z Money's time on the set of the US TV show Shameless, starring as Todd, 
and his latest role in Little Fires Everywhere as Tupac Shirt, starring Reese Weatherspoon and Kerry Washington. Plus more news from Z Money about his up-and-coming projects. So don't miss this one. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and follow The Entertainment Engine on Facebook and Twitter for all the latest updates. It would be great to have your feedback on the show, so you can always drop us a message at any time. That'd be great. Thanks for listening to the show and stay safe. The Entertainment Engine.